0: We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 today, if you've got your Bible with you. Mark the 8th chapter. And uh, if you do not have a Bible, we always have them available on the, uh, hold, the, the uh, racks on the walls. Feel free to grab one. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you feel free to take that Bible home with you as our gift. I want to talk about a little different... Um, angle on Mark 8 than perhaps you've uh, thought about before. I've been asking you each week to be going through the passage with us so that when you come, you're familiar with, or at least you've read it once or twice or maybe a half dozen times. And uh, if you've read Mark 8, you, you know that it's got some amazing miracles and, and uh, this really cool stuff that, uh, that Jesus does. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a different shift. And we're going to look at this thing called correction, discipline, because in this chapter, we see Jesus disciplining some people, some groups, and some individuals uh, in this passage. Now, most people do not really get uh, excited about discipline or correction. The minute I said that, some of you thought, I'm going to get my phone out and go on to the free Wi-Fi. You're looking for something to do because you're thinking, I don't really want to go there. The truth of the matter is, it, when we understand what correction and discipline does for us and why God does that, then I think we'll get it. Uh, in my life, uh, I have been disciplined and corrected both uh, poorly, in fact, I would almost call it abuse, uh, probably could, and in really good and holy ways. Um, last summer, my wife and I were driving back from Portland, and, you know, it's a long drive, five, six hours, depending on whether you do the speed limit or not, and uh, I got a phone call from somebody on staff, and they were calling to inform me about something and ask me for some advice. And I, uh, I got mad. I didn't get mad at them, but I got mad about the situation. Now, I, I will tell you, I'm going to be, I'm pretty real, pretty real, raw. I have uh, gotten way better in the last, you know, decade or so in dealing with my temper and my anger. But boy, there was a time, especially early in our marriage, where I was, I was terrible. I was really. Uh, angry guy. In fact, I never struck or hit my wife, not even once, but in our very first apartment, our very first year of marriage, I literally put my fist through the wall because I was so angry at my wife at one point. Now, let me just give you a little insight. That's really dumb. It hurts. You don't want to put your fist through walls because I almost broke my my hand in the process. But I have come from a family. My family of origin uh, was a family that yelled at each other all the time. And anger and outburst of anger was kind of normal. Now, my poor wife, she grew up in a very passive environment. Uh, Her mom and dad, when they got mad at each other, they just wouldn't talk to each other. They would give the silent treatments. And I remember coming over to her house, you know, for Taco Tuesday or whatever it was and show up and, and it just, you feel this weirdness in the house and I go, what's going on? She said, my mom and dad aren't talking to each other. Really? What's that like? I mean, in my house, when we got mad, it was yell, scream, spit, you know, it was, it was violent, it was outburst, it was horrible. And her parents, they would sometimes not talk for days, years, <laughs> and just, and that's not my experience. And so you imagine we get married and I'm the outburst reactive type. And, and uh, I have these outbursts of anger. Well, I, again, I've gotten much better. The Lord has dealt with me and continued to work in my attitude. But I'm on the car, in the car, driving home, on the phone, and I, and I lost it. I got mad. And I'm just having a tissy fit in the car. And I hung up from this person. And you know, with the people that we're the safest with sometimes, those are sometimes the people that end up being the most uh, offended by us because we feel comfortable and safe, and so I just went off. And, and I am yelling, I'm screaming, I'm punching the, the steering wheel. I'm so mad, and I'm using bad language. I'm cursing. Now, I, 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 don't, you know, I didn't drop the F-bomb. I don't use crude language. I, you know, if it has anything to do with bodily functions, I don't go there. But I was using a bunch of other stuff that wasn't very holy and very nice, and I'm just going off. And I mean, I'm just screaming mad. And my wife, she is wise. My wife is a very wise woman. She knows not to get involved in the midst of my temper tantrums. And so she just sat there in the car waiting for me to calm down a little bit. And when I finally did, uh, she gave it about five minutes, and she very gently said, Sweetheart, I, I really don't like it when you talk like that. It just, I just don't think it's the way Jesus would talk. Now, there was a time early in our marriage I would have gone, well, aren't you special? You know, I mean, I, I would have said some smart aleck, you know, thing to put her in her place, and to, or I would have gotten even more angry and had round two in my temp, temper tantrum. But I am learning. I'm growing. And I realized when she said that, she's right. And she brought correction to my life. She brought some discipline to my life, and it was a good thing. My dad, on the other hand, uh, when I was growing up, I have a pretty dysfunctional family. If you've read my book, Epic Grace, you know a lot of my family history. And uh, my dad was abusive. And there are times that he gets so angry that he did not correct me out of love. It was because he was just ticked off. And it was, boy, drop your, your drawers, bend over, and he used a belt on me. And, and again, it was almost always out of his anger, out of his frustration, and it really wasn't for my benefit what happened, and what does happen for a lot of us who've had that kind of experience, is that we have a very difficult time understanding how God could be good and, and discipline us. Because we react to it, we, our, our past, the baggage we have from our experience with our parents or whomever in our life creates this tension. So for some of you, when I said we're going to talk about correction today, boy, your blood pressure went up like that. And I, you know, I use the D word, discipline. You're like, oh, man, why did I, I should have stayed home today. Because you have these bad past experiences like I had with my dad, and you view God as ticked off, angry. He's got a belt in hand, and he's ready to give you a whooping. And I, I'm here today. I want you to understand that is not the heart of God. That is not the way he is at all. But Jesus does sometimes get in our face. And that's what I want to talk about today. Sometimes he does bring correction. He may bring correction through his word. There have been times I've read the word and just go, oh, Lord, I am so not doing that. I'm so not that man. I need, and the word just cuts to, the, to my heart and, and, and speaks to me. Sometimes the Holy Spirit you know, when, if you're a Christ follower, you, uh, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And I know if you're investigating Christianity, you go, what does that mean? Are you possessed? No. It's you, now this temple. You're your body, your mind. You're the God lives in you. And sometimes it's the Holy Spirit. You do something and immediately you just feel grieved. You go, oh. And you just know that you've, you've grieved the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God uses circumstances. Now, I don't believe God uh, brings sickness or disease or does stuff like that to teach us a lesson. But sometimes he allows natural consequences of our choices to teach us. He uses circumstances to get our attention. He uses circumstances to mold us and to shape us. And then, of course, God uses people as well. People like God uses my wife in my life. And, and some of the men that I'm accountable to. Some of the guys on staff that I'm accountable to. That, that they speak correction to my life. But why does God do that? Why does God speak to us? Well, I'm gonna give you, here's my premise, and this is very important that you hear this, and if you're taking notes, you might wanna jot this down. When we are corrected for the right reason with the right heart, for the right reason with the right heart, discipline is an act of love. It's always an act of love. Why does God do it? It's because he loves us. And when someone disciplines you, or hopefully if you're disciplining your child, and, and that's a good thing, if you're doing it for the right reason with the right heart, Very critical. Right reason for the right heart. You're not doing it because you're just ticked. You're not doing it because you're mad. You're not doing it to get even. You're not doing it to make them pay for hurting you. When you do it for the right reason with the right heart, then it is an act of love. And when God disciplines you and me, it is an act of his love. Hebrews chapter 12. Don't have the time to go there today. But uh, the writer of Hebrews deals with this. And he says, those whom God loves, he what? He disciplines. He disciplines he molds, He shapes, He carves us. And later in the same passage, in Hebrews 12, 11, the writer admits, he said, it's never fun to be corrected. In fact, at the time, it's always painful. Yeah. But if we learn to obey by being corrected, we will do right and live at peace. God does it because He loves us. It's not fun. It's, in fact, painful. But it helps us become obedient. It helps become the men and women that He wants us to become. When children are disciplined and they're done so for the right reason and in love, it's good for them. When we are disciplined for the right reason, by God or by others or by his spirit or by his word, for the right reasons with the right heart, then it's good for us. Let me give you one other thing I want you to know before we get into Mark 8. When the Bible, the New Testament uses the word discipline. You see the word discipline, or correction. There's a word used there in the original language of the Greek that does not mean wrath. It doesn't mean God just whoops us because he's ticked. The word could be translated, God molds, carves, shapes, or forms us. He trains us. The word, when we read discipline, when we hear about discipline, as we look at discipline from Mark chapter eight, you need to get this. God does soap to mold us. Ever worked with clay? Okay, play Yeah, we've all done Play-Doh probably. And, and there's, this, there's this pressure that we shape something because we're trying to make something good. God shapes us. He molds us. Sometimes he carves. It means to cut away the stuff that, that doesn't look like Jesus, the stuff that, that needs to be removed from our lives. It's to train us. In fact, here's one other definition, and this is good. To, it, to the discipline of God, the correction of God, is to adjust and guide for the sake of holiness. It is to adjust, to, to tweak, to adjust, to, to make a change in us and to, to bring that about for the sake of holiness, to just and to guide us, to make us more like Jesus. So as we look at Mark chapter eight, and I point out some of the discipline that you may have noticed in here before, or maybe you have, I want you to know that Jesus is doing this, and he's doing it on purpose, and I'm gonna give you three things I'm doing this to help you remember it. Three A words that, that, that are in this passage. What does Jesus do? How does he correct us? He corrects our altitude, our attitude, and our actions. Our altitude, I'll explain that in a minute, Our altitude, our attitude, and our actions. Mark chapter 8. First 10 verses of the passage uh, is the story of Jesus feeding uh, 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish. And it's a great miracle. It's the second time that he'd done something like this. And uh, you need to know that this is the background to what I'm about to read. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 11. Mark 8 verse 11. Jesus now crossed the lake. He'd sent everybody home. He's across the lake. He gets off the boat. And the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Do you see some correction going on here? The Pharisees come, and they're constantly, they don't like him, they don't, they don't believe in him, and they're coming to test him, they're trying to find fault in him, and he said they, they're demanding a miraculous sign from heaven. And what that implies is, we want you to call down manna from heaven like Moses did. Stop the sun. do something you know, that nobody can deny that would make you the son of God. And Jesus deeply sighed and basically said, you're a sinful generation, and turned around and walked away. There's correction that he brought there. read on, verse 14. Now they're back in the boat, going to the other side of the lake again. And the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now they're in the boat. They've seen this incredible miracle. They saw the Pharisees once again come and try to, you know, trip Jesus up and mess him up. Jesus is thinking about this, and he sees this as a teachable moment with the disciples. He's not thinking about how much bread did you bring with us on this trip. He's thinking about, I'm gonna give this opportunity now to share with these guys another lesson. He says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. That thing that can infect that, that traditionalism, that religiosity that, that the, the Pharisees that makes being right more important than being relational, beware of that. Beware of the yeast of Herod, the consumerism, the materialism, the, the, the compromise, don't go there. Well, these guys don't get it. Verse 16, they discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Their conclusion was Jesus is mad because we didn't bring any of the leftovers. Verse 17, aware of this discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 previously, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. Verse 20, And when I broke the seven loaves, like an hour ago, and for 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. And then verse 21, He said to them, Do you still not understand? Really, guys? You're worried? You think this is about bread? because you didn't bring enough leftovers. There's a correction. Pick it up in verse 27. Skip down to verse 27. Jesus and disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And by the way, this is the most important question on the planet. It's right here. Who do you say that Jesus is? Determines everything. Everything. It determines your eternal destiny. It determines the way you're going to live. It determines everything. This is the most important question, and it's right here at the center of Mark chapter 8. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples, well, some say you're John the Baptist. It came back to life. Others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks at these guys, and he looks them in the eyes and says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up. He says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus wanted them not to tell anyone about this. He wanted them to know it, but he, he didn't want the, the crowd to take and try and make him king. Well, let's read on verse 31. He, be, he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things. So he just has this incredible encounter. Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. Hey, you're the Messiah. We get it. We're, we're with you. We're, you're awesome, Jesus. And Jesus shifts gears like he often did And he says, well, I'm going to suffer and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and I'm going to be killed, and after three days, rise again. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. Most theologians believe this is probably the first time, maybe two years into the ministry of Jesus, that he was painfully clear about what his destiny was. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's like, Jesus, come here for a second. No, no way. This is not what's going to happen. Verse 33, but when Jesus turned, uh, excuse me, verse 32, he spoke plainly and took, uh, yeah, for 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked, see, some correction there? He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. By the way, the most important question is who do you say Jesus is? One of the most important issues for us is what mindset are we going to live with? Are we going to live with the the things of God in mind or the things of man in mind? You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. verse 34, now he just rebuked Peter. The disciples are all probably going, oh, wow. And Peter's not feeling real good about himself at that moment. And then he called the crowd to him, verse 34, along with his disciples and said, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus corrects Peter. And then he shifts gears and begins to give them a a different way, a different perspective, a different way for them to live, a different uh, way for them to function as his followers. Why does Jesus correct us? I said three things. First, to adjust our altitude. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's he just he lowers us. He he wants to break us. He wants to, to humble us. He wants to knock us off our high horse. Now, again, you need to understand, what I said earlier, please hear this. He does so because he loves you. He does so because he cares deeply about you. And Jesus knows that pride is the the, the, the one thing. In fact, Solomon wrote, pride goes before what? Destruction, before a fall. James said, don't be proud. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, uh, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He lifts up the humble. The Bible consistently, over and over, Old and New Testament, challenges us not to give in to pride. Pride is why Satan turned against God and fell to earth in the first place. I don't need you, I can be God. And many, most of the problems on this planet, the problems we have, are rooted in this issue. We're proud. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And the Bible says in Romans 12, don't go there. Don't be that, that person. God, I promise you this. He will deal with your pride. He's dealt with mine and continues to. When he sees that seed or that sore or that cesspool of pride in our soul, he is going to find a way to reveal that and to to humble you. And it's not to embarrass you. It's not to make you feel bad. It is to change you. It is to help you become the man or woman he's destined you to become because he knows pride will destroy that, will keep you from being that person. The Pharisees were proud. That was their problem. Peter was proud. Jesus, come on, you really, let me tell you what's really gonna happen here. We're gonna go to Jerusalem and you're gonna become king and we're gonna kick out the Romans and none of this dying death Cross stuff. I'm tired of hearing about that. And Jesus said, "Get thee behind me, Satan." How many of you like to hear that from Jesus? Uh, correction, adjustment, a, a, an attitude—excuse uh, me, an altitude adjustment. Where Jesus is bringing humility, and He will do so in our lives. Years, many, many, many years ago, when I was in my 20s and early 30s, I worked in the banking industry, and I worked in quite a different few areas. Started in branch operations, ended up in DP and data processing. And and, uh, to be honest with you, um, everything I put my hand to succeeded. And I was cocky because of it. I look back now and I realize it was something called the favor of God. It's God's goodness to me. It was his grace in my life. But at the time, I'm thinking, man, I am God's gift to the banking industry. (laughs) And I am probably going to be CEO by the time I'm 30. And wow, aren't they lucky to have me. And I mean, I never said those things out loud, but ask my wife, ask people who work with me, They will tell you, man, you really were cocky. You were, you were arrogant. Well, we were in this major retrofit of changing some programs and, and trying to keep up with regulations. And we had all these tests we had to run and blah, 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 blah. Well, before I went home one night, I had a job I needed to run on the mainframe, on the main computer. And what I should have got as a result of that was a pile of reports about this tall. But in my haste, in my arrogance, in my cockiness, I ran through this whole process, didn't double check because I'm good. I don't need help. I got this down. And I remember somebody even say, hey, you okay with that? Yeah, 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 I'm fine. Well, what I ended up with instead of the next morning when I came in, a pile of reports this tall, I literally had almost three palletfuls of reports. The guys who worked the graveyard shift and and data processing hated me. And it was, it, paper's one thing, but it was the time and the machine time and their effort, and it was a huge waste, a thousands of dollars waste of company resources. And when I found out about that, I thought, oh, no, I'm gonna get fired. Because my boss was not the kind of guy who was gonna let something like that slide. He was, he had high standards. And I remember sitting in my cubicle and uh, nervous, worried, trying to hide out, and I, you know, I didn't even go to the bathroom all morning long, because I didn't want to run into him, and, and all of a sudden, his secretary uh, came and said, hey, Kurt, Jerry wants to see you. She never came to me. She always called me and said, hey, Jerry needs to see you, or, or I had an appointment or whatever. She came to my, my, my cubicle, tracked me down, and said, Jerry needs you now, and I remember walking to his office, and I was convinced I was going to be fired. And I, I probably should have been. Sat down in the chair, and he's working on something at his desk. Didn't even look up at me. And he says, "Boobna, what would you do? And I said, I blew it. I made a mistake. I, I failed. Sorry, I... Is that... Do I anybody else there beeping? Okay. okay, good. I just thought maybe it was my mind going crazy. Anyhow, I said, Jerry, I blew it. I made a mistake. And he said, yeah, you did. It cost us a lot of money. And he's still not even looking at me. And I'm expecting the next words out of his mouth are, you're fired. Pack up your cubicle and go home. And then he looked up at me and he said, well, um, what did you learn through this? And I told him, well, I I need to slow down. I guess I'm not as good as I thought I was. He said, well, it's an expensive lesson, but I'm glad you learned it. Get out of here and go help the guys shred everything. (laughs) So I tell you what, two things happened. After that moment. First, I began to breathe again, which was really good. Second, is a, I, that guy had my undying dedication. I, I would have taken a bullet for him because, man, I knew what I deserved. But it dropped me. It humbled me. It was a drop in my altitude, and I needed that. And I tell you this. I promise you this. God will search out by his spirit, by his word, by others. He will find a way to highlight that arrogance, that pride in your heart, and he will crush it because he loves you. The second thing he does, he adjusts our attitude, our attitudes. He changes our perspective, our faith, our beliefs, our values. In verses 21, 17 through 21, Jesus asks these guys nine questions. They're like, "Uh, oh, we forgot to bring bread. And they're feeling kind of stupid because we had all these leftovers and we didn't bring anything. And Jesus is frustrated. He's upset with us, I'm sure, because we didn't grab enough for him and us. And, and Jesus, you guys, don't you get this? You think you had one little piece of bread? You had don't you? Do you remember what I did with for five thousand? Do you remember what I did for four thousand? And here you are sitting in a boat, thinking that it's about bread. It's not. And he adjusted their attitude. He tried to give them a different perspective. One of the things God is committed to is He wants us to begin to think and to live and, and function thinking kingdom ways, not man's ways. Peter, you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. He just attitudes. He comes and says, you know what? That's not what I believe. That's not a value of the kingdom. That's not something that I think is important. I know it is to our culture. I know it is to our world. But that's not the way we live as Christ's followers. And through his word, through others, through the circumstances, through the Holy Spirit, he's constantly adjusting our attitude, constantly working on us to change us, to think like, transforming our minds, it says in Romans to think like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to value what Jesus values. I had a guy, um, I don't know, a year or so ago, maybe a couple of years now, but uh, grabbed me in the, in the lobby. And I'm usually out there before service, and, and I happen to be out there after service. And, and he said, hey, pastor, uh, I, I, I got a question for you. Yeah, sure. Great. What? And uh, he, he, he said, I, I need to know something. He said, you know, I, you're always talking about reaching the lost people and caring for people in our community and serving our community and doing all these things. And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. And I'm thinking, I, I'm thinking I'm going to get an attaboy. I'm thinking he's going to go, I really love this church because it's, you know, it's all about people and reaching the lost. And, and, and what I got instead was shocked me. He says, I need to know something. I said, well, I got what? When's it going to be about me? And at first I thought, what did he say? And then I realized he wasn't about to give me a boy. He was trying to kick my tush thinking that I, and I didn't care about him and care about, you know, discipling. And, and I said, let me, I didn't, my Bible's up here somewhere. I said, he had his Bible. I said, give me your Bible. And I opened up, I didn't think twice about it. I opened up to Philippians chapter 2. You can read it on your own. But Philippians 2, pick up verse 3. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And here's the part that gets really challenging. Verse five, your attitude. He adjusts our attitude. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form, the very nature of a servant. I said, do you understand that Jesus came in fact, I, I quoted Luke 19, Jesus came to, to seek and to save the lost. Matthew, uh, I think it's Matthew 20, where Jesus said, I, I didn't come to serve, but uh, to be served, but to serve, uh, to give my life as a ransom for others. And I said, listen, dude, I said, we do care about you. We offer discipleship classes and life groups and, and mentoring for marriages. We offer all these things to help you grow I said, but we are doing even that so that you can become mature in Christ and disciple others, be a disciple maker, reach the people in this county and beyond who don't know Jesus are going to hell without him. I said, yes, it's, it's not about me. It's not about you. Ultimately, we lay our lives down just like Jesus did. Hello. We give our lives away. We serve. We don't worry about being served, but we give. We give our lives away. That's the attitude that Jesus had, and that's the attitude. I, I'll go nose to nose with anybody on this. That's the call. We disciple. We are discipled to become disciple makers, and it's about those who are far from God, who don't know Him yet. And that's the heart. That's Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Luke nineteen ten. You just our attitudes, where it's in our society so common to be narcissistic and me-centered, Jesus says, no, that's not, I'm not going to let you follow me and get away with that. You can't call yourself a Christ follower and be that person because I'm going to change you. I'm going to help you become otherly focused and otherly minded and to consider others more important than you do even yourself. He changes our attitudes. One last thing, and I'll be brief on this. He, he corrects us to adjust our action the way we live our actions in the last part of this chapter in fact it's probably one of my favorite passages in all the book of mark maybe all the new testament because beginning in verse 31 jesus defines for us what it means to follow him he says you've got to you, you know you're going to have to take up your cross you're going to need to to lose your life if you want to find it You're gonna need to have an attitude where you're not ashamed of me, but you're you're bold in sharing your love for me. And Jesus says, this is the way I expect my disciples, Christ followers, Christians, to to live and operate. Now, all of us, let me just give you another little insight here. All of us have a long ways to go. If I ever stand up here and tell you I have arrived, fire my butt, because that's okay. Because I don't wanna be that guy. I don't want to say, you know, I've, I have somehow reached nirvana. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm in process just like you. I'm on the same trail you are. Maybe a step or two, a, a little bit ahead of you and saying, come, let's go this way. Maybe we're walking side by side. Maybe I'm following some of you. But the truth of the matter is God wants to change the way we live. Not only our altitude humble us our attitudes, the way we process and think and the values that we have, but what we do, the way we function. And he wants to make us look more and more like Jesus. And he's committed to that more than you realize. And so when we start doing something that's not Christ-like, we can expect to be corrected by the word, by his spirit, by circumstances, by others in our life. When I'm having a tissy fit and being stupid in the car, it's, it, it, was, it was God that spoke through my wife. Honey, I don't think Jesus would talk like that. And she said it in love. She said it because she loves me. God adjusts our actions. He wants us to grow. You know, I mentioned my dad and how really emotionally and physically abusive he was uh, to me and my siblings most of our lives growing up. And my dad had a lot of issues, and he was broken, had a lot of things, you know, he learned the way he was from his father. But when my dad was in his uh, late 50s, uh, he was working, driving a, uh, for a company, it was in a small truck in Southern California, a very rainy, uh, stormy day, lost control of his light truck, slammed into to the guardrail at 60-plus miles an hour, and broke his back. And my dad had multiple surgeries, multiple experiences. In fact, a total of 14 weeks, weeks in the hospital over the next couple of years as they tried to fix his back and heal him and make it better. And I remember uh, when my dad was dying of cancer, and this was years later after that experience, and my dad walked with some pain for most of his life and couldn't even stand straight because of the, the damage to his spine. I remember my dad saying to me, Son... Uh, first, he said, it was thanks for being there for me and help, all the help you did through those years. Thanks for being patient with me. He asked me to forgive him. I tell you, man, I never bawled harder in my life than that moment my dad said, Son, I need you to forgive me. And then I said, Dad, I'm so sorry you've suffered so much these last two years. I'm sorry you're suffering now with cancer. And he said, Son, he said, That moment my back got broke on that highway was the moment God began to break me. He says, I don't, I, I, if I could choose, I would not go back and do that. It's not like it was been fun. He said, but what I realized is that that was where God began to change me. God changed his altitude. He humbled my dad. He changed his attitude through all the suffering and the stuff that he went through, and he changed the way my dad lived in the last two years of my dad's life for the best years I ever had. I finally had the father that I always longed for. Took 50-plus years for my dad to get there. Don't be that stubborn. Don't be that guy, that gal. Be the person who says yes to God and that surrenders to him and says, God, whatever it takes, mold me, shape me, correct me, discipline me so that I can become what you want me to be. Bow your heads, let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for your patience with us. But thank you for your dedication to correcting us, to, uh, to adjusting our minds, our thinking, our values, to changing the way we live. Thank you that the Holy Spirit lives within us that constantly guides us and leads us into all truth. Thank you that you are more committed to us becoming the men and women that you've called us to be than we can even imagine. And God, I pray that my, my, the win for me today is that we would leave here, that all of us would leave here today with a different perspective of God's discipline and correction and that we would actually embrace it. That we would surrender to it. That we would say, Lord, whatever's in me that's not like you, deal with it. God, where my heart's not right, deal with it. Heal me. Correct me. God, where my attitude's bad and and it's not at all like you, correct me. Change me. Where my actions don't line up with the kingdom of God and, and the way that I know I should walk. God, help me. Empower me. Correct me. Guide me. Lead me. Get me on that path. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would today embrace the discipline of God as an act of your love and that we would surrender to you daily. Take up our cross and surrender to you. Keep your head bowed, your eyes closed. Maybe you're here today and you've not yet started your life as a Christ follower. Or maybe you've been a prodigal son or daughter and you've wandered far from God and you know it's time to come home. If you're here right now and you know, or maybe you're listening online and you know Oh, man, I I want to follow Jesus. I want to surrender my life to him. You just, you're ready. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. I'm going to ask you to just own this prayer. Make my words your words right now as I pray this simple prayer. Father, forgive me. I I have messed up. I have failed. I've sinned. I've gone my own way. And right here, right now, I ask you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And I surrender my life, past, present, future. It's yours. Thank you for surrendering your life for me on that cross. I see it. I get it. You died for my sins. And today I stand here. I I come here. I, I choose to embrace what you did personally for me. And I'm yours. I'm your child. I'm surrendering my life. Help me to follow you now. Change me even more and more and more into the image of your son. Now, if that's you and that's your, your heart and your own way to say, yep, God, that's what I want, that's what I need. The Bible says the moment you say yes, the moment you cross that line of surrender to God, you become his child. It's the beginning. It's a, there's a long journey into eternity. And he's more committed to the process than you can imagine. But today's that beginning for you. And I pray that God would seal that in your heart. And that all of us who leave here today more aware of our need to say yes to God. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to finish with uh, one of my favorite worship songs. It's the song, I Surrender. Make this a prayer. Make this real for you. Usher's are going to come. We're going to give. If you're a guest today, please don't feel obligated to give. If this is your church family, give to support what God's doing. But let's give as we worship and surrender our lives to Him. And I'll come back and wrap it up. Surrender is a choice. It's one we make now, one we make later, one we make tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. That's why Jesus said daily, daily take up your cross. We keep keep growing, keep going and making that choice again and again. For those of you that made the choice today to begin your life as a Christ follower, man, tell somebody. We want to celebrate with you. We want to walk with you. Tell the friend and the family member you came with. Tell on the prayer team, tell me. We want to be a part of this journey with you. And on the tables, uh, by the doors, there's a uh, package for new believers and a Bible's material. You start your walk with Jesus. Uh, the date for our next new believers class, the first steps class is on there as well. Please pick one of those up. If you need prayer today. Maybe an act of surrender for you is to actually humble yourself and say, would you pray with me about this? And we've got a trained prayer team that's up here because they love you and they want to support you. Some of you, you need to finish today as the final act of surrender for this moment is to take communion on both sides of the room. Just kind of seal the deal. Jesus says, you died for me. I'm, I'm going to follow this path of death unto life. But here's my benediction. Here's my prayer for you. May you go this week knowing that you are loved beyond your imagination. And because of that love, he's dedicated to your growth. And he's going to get you where you need to be as you keep saying yes to him. Go say yes to Jesus. See you next week. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming.